And with that, I turn it over to Matt for the message. You're not going to even say anything about your husband's birthday today. Okay. okay. Unbelievable. Wait. Steve, you deserve better. Wait, I have one thing to say about this. I've been married to the man for 40 Guarantee years, and I know he thing. doesn't want any attention on his birthday. So that's why I didn't say anything. It's too late for that. Um, good evening, you guys. Welcome to church. My name is Matt Mulberry. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. Um, I'm trying to get the remote control thing so I can, I can control the slides. Last time I tried this, it was really bad and it didn't work out and it was uncomfortable for everyone. And most of the church actually left and they haven't returned. So we do not want that to happen again. Um, this is the portion of our, our worship program where we try to take our stories, reroute them inside of a scriptural context and see is there anything in there that we might be able to pull out for here. I want to do that tonight with you. I want to start with a different story. Story of my friend. It's a small, short story. But he, uh, a couple of years back, was taking his three kids to a beach in North Carolina. And on his way there, he found his Camry in the crosshairs of some church with some particular billboard ministry. And the billboard read this out loud. Did it work? It did. Jesus has your number. Repent now with a well-manicured Caucasian hand pointing out of the ominous storm cloud behind it just to really kind of punctuate the point. Now, I asked my friend, I said, like, what was your reaction when you first came in this? He goes, I was shocked because, you know, I've, I've long held this lingering suspicion that, that Shooter McGavin actually was God. But for my faith to become sight like it did in this moment was just truly overwhelming. And finally, he could put that massive question that was hanging over his life to rest. But at the same time, it opened up new questions. He said that when he got to the beach and he was sitting on the sand and his kids were all out on their boards, he started to get curious about what the sign was actually saying to him and why it was still kicking up in his spirit. He started to wonder, is this what God's like? Is this pistol finger Jesus an accurate representation of what God is like. And so he called me, and we were talking. He didn't call me from the beach, but later on in the night, he called me and said, we were, we were kind of talking about this, the back and forth around, like, what does it mean? And, and honestly, he's asking the question of, is this what God is like? Is this the good, good father that Christians sing about on Sunday? And I'm going for the question of, like, is this what the church had in mind when they funded this billboard? Like when they got together in that basement of the church and they're having cheap coffee and they're having the conversation and they're bringing out different ideas for what the billboard might look like, the aesthetics, the image, the kind of hand they want protruding from the cloud, and they got that number right there. Is this what they wanted was fear and anxiety? Do they want John Wayne, Jesus coming out of the cloud? And then my mind started going further and going like, is, is this the result that they wanted from this particular man? In fact, what, what was their target market? Like, who did they have in mind when they posted up this sign by a beach, a place where people were coming from rest for respite, a place for people coming to enjoy themselves, to let their hair down, to escape from the demands of life. When they were going there for joy and they ran into this sign first, who were the people that they were hoping to reach in doing so? Was it all beachgoers that day or was it just like the liberals pulling in in their Priuses? Was it the people who enjoy an IPA over dinner? Or was it people who have like those bumper stickers that have the fish with the feet on the bottom? Who did they have in mind? Who were the target? Who was the target market? And they started drafting up this plan. 
These are the questions that now at this point in the phone conversation with my friend, I'm bouncing back and forth and we're kind of laughing about it, but kind of also seriously. And there's a third question that came up. We started with the question of who is it that the billboard is trying to speak to? Second question, who is it that they believe they are speaking for? And then the third question was, and why does it feel so familiar? I haven't seen that particular hand protruding any out of any cloud, but that sentiment of fear and anxiety of make one false step and that hand will pull the trigger, I felt that before. In fact, one la last year, I had this call that came from a college kid. He lives in Minneapolis. He partakes in a big church. Christian, I can't move from this front, correct? He's a part of a church where he is um, he's big on, on pistol finger Jesus, to say the very least. And he lives with a group of guys who are also kind of of the same sentiment. In this group, he comes into the Noodles restaurant where we meet and he starts to tell me about how tired he is, how exhausted he's become from trying to do everything perfectly because he's living with these guys and they are accountability partners. And so every time one of them messes up, they all get on each other. So if you look at somebody's body for too long, you're going to get chewed out for doing so. If you curse while playing Madden, you're going to get chewed out for doing so. If you make one false step, you won't just get to get away with it. You're going to get chewed out for doing so. And so he came to that restaurant and he pulled up on the other side of the table and he said, I don't really know you, Matt, but I know that you're a pastor, which means I'm assuming you know something about God. Is it normal for me to be this stressed out over my life? Is, is fidelity to Christ supposed to come at such a cost of fear in me? Am I forever to walk with this limp? Because I got to be honest with you, I know that God loves me, but I'm getting yelled at day in, day out, whether it's by my roommates or by myself, that I'm no longer convinced that God actually likes me. And I'm running out of the energy to care. I'm running out of energy to really try to change things up and get things right. It was a heartbreaking conversation, but the most heartbreaking part of it all is that weeks after that conversation, we talked again and he was still living with the same people. And he was still going to that same church. Because if he wasn't, what if pistol finger Jesus pulls the trigger? What happens at that point then? I know that we all have different kinds of fears. And I know that this isn't unique to religious people alone. But there is something very acute in religious people when it comes to fear. This palpable paranoia, this anxiety that runs throughout the whole religious industrial system. Fear of like, am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? Am, am I saying the right things? Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I living in the right place? Am I singing loud enough? Am I going to church? Is two times a month enough? Or do I need to make it three to four? Like, what's the baseline here? There are religious people who are running on fear. There are actually even some religious people who are afraid that other people aren't afraid enough. Fear is consistent. Fear is there from start to finish. And I don't understand why. Especially since this sign is not talking about some ambiguous God. This sign tells me that Jesus has your number, my number. Is Jesus a God that we are supposed to fear? Is Jesus the being that when you think of, you cringe and cower in fear? Is that the image of God that you hold for yourself? All this fear. 
we gather on Sunday. I think, Christian, about that song we just sang, we, don't, we didn't talk about it prior to, but you are the hand that reaches out to save. When this hand looks like it's reaching out to snipe, and there's a world of difference between the two. We are singing these songs as if we are singing to the God of Mount Zion, but we're doing so as if we're still stuck on Mount Sinai. And that's a biblical name drop. That let me just connect the dots for those of you who didn't follow me there. Long story, let me try to make it short. Moses, you remember Moses from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus in particular. He hears a voice from God who says, go and set the people free. People who have been enslaved and in bondage for centuries, 400 years strong. Moses goes and after a long drawn out process, uh, the people are set free. Three months into the Exodus, three months into walking in the woods, Moses says, the time has come where you are about to encounter the living God. God is going to descend. God is going to speak. And that's a big deal. Not just because God is speaking, but because God hadn't said much prior to. It had been a minute since God had last stepped on stage. Yes, there had been side conversations and private affairs with people like Noah and uh, Abraham. But, but God hadn't spoken to the masses in a little while. And so when Moses is preparing the people... It is supposed to be this groundbreaking celebratory affair. Everyone is supposed to be celebrating. And yet instead, what happens is everybody ends up scared out of their minds. It's supposed to be celebratory. It's supposed to be the party of all parties. It's actually supposed to, it's set up in a way that reflects a, an ancient um, wedding of sorts. The Ten Commandments that be given on the, on the mountain, they were like wedding vows. That's why the first one says, God is saying, I want to be your only one. It's supposed to be this beautiful, sacred thing, but it's not a beautiful and sacred thing. Moses comes to the people and he says, God told me to tell all of you that if any of you touch the mountain, be it the base or the top, if even your dog touches the mountain, be it the base or the top, you're gonna die. Don't come near this mountain or it'll be over for you. And then on the third day, in the third month of their exodus, the God that they hadn't heard spoken to speak since the last time in Genesis when God said 10 words, here on the top of the mountain he gives 10 new words. And the people, when they hear God handing over the ring, they hear thunder in the air. They see fire on the sides, they see smoke. The whole earth is trembling, it's shaking. They can't make out what's happening. And everyone from start to stop is terrified. This climactic moment that is supposed to be celebratory, they all end up terrifying. And you kind of get it when you think about the scene, not just for the pyrotechnics involved, but also because of what the presence of the law is going to mean for the people of the land. If there's a law that is present, then that means right and wrong is being established. If there is some kind of universal ethical code that's being established, then all of a sudden the wrong steps that we make, there are consequences attached. This is why Nietzsche, the philosopher, he, he loves the Old Testament, but not so much the New Testament. In fact, Nietzsche believed that it was a sin to glue the New Testament book of grace to the Old Testament book of divine justice because for him, the Old Testament was perfect. It was a perfect and accurate re reflection of what it means to be alive in this world and how we actually go about doing this. You need to listen up, you need to speak right, you need to treat your neighbor right, and if you don't, you better check yourself because God will take you out. If you make one false step, God will come and get you. This scene here at Sinai, is this what God 
is like. This scene here on the billboard, is that what God is like? When they try to capture the scene, the writers of the book of Exodus, they write this. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, you go speak, okay, because we don't want to. You can talk to us and we're going to listen to you, but make sure God, especially if God is like that, make sure that God doesn't speak to us or we're going to be toast. If there is a mantra of the afraid, if there is a title for our collective memoir, it's those words right there. They stayed at a distance. Because that's what you do when you're afraid of something. We stay at a distance, both from who we actually are and also from the object of our fear. And there are grounds to be scared of this God on Mount Sinai. At least I think there are. Because for the life of me, I can't think of anything more frightening or terrifying than a God whose disposition we can sour with our own humanity. I can't think of anything that is more scary than a God who, when presented with the reality of our weaknesses, seems irrationally caught off guard by the reality of our weaknesses. It's like a mom who walks into the room and her kids are in there trying out some potty talk that they picked up at school and she is shocked and horrified to find that they're not just sitting still watching Anne of Green Gables on the TV. How could they be doing this? Well, what's happening there? You have the most powerful person inside of the house being oppressed by the least powerful people inside of the house. Is God being oppressed by the least powerful people in the house? Is this what God is like? Now, some of us, like I would imagine the people that are sitting on the billboard committee, we have this sense, maybe even this is like a religious loyalty that we feel like we need to defend this God. We feel like we need to defend the goodness of this God. We need to argue for this God. This idea is that fearing this God is the way that we take seriously God, right? If we don't fear God, then we won't take serious God. Some of us actually would insist that the word in the scripture for fear is simultaneously could be used to describe respect. But there's a world of difference between fear and respect. I mean, I respect my mailman. But if I'm doing it because I fear my mailman, if I fear that if I, I, I don't properly respect him, he's going to put anthrax in the mail, then that's not actually respect. That's more fear just properly folded up behind vocabulary. But it's still fear. Now, other people would say that it's actually not about respect, that I think we should defend this, but we will defend it because what's the point of faith if there is no fear involved? Like, why are we not out golfing right now if there's nothing to be worried about? What, why are we doing any of this? What's the point of showing up at church? What's the point of giving to a church? Faith almost just seems dysfunctional without fear, or at the very least, it feels a little pointless if there's nothing to be afraid of. And so, I mean, just consider this as a hypothetical thought experiment. What if we suddenly knew in, in like cold, hard fact that nobody, and I do mean nobody, is going to be eternally tortured forever and ever after life? What if Jesus permanently put away his pistol finger six shooter and there was no punitive response that we had to spend our days tiptoeing around? If that became a fact and it was no longer up for, date, for debate, how would that change how you go about your business when you show up at the office tomorrow? Would we still do honest work? 
and refuse to forge signatures? Would we lie on timesheets? Would we smuggle home printer paper? Would we objectify our coworkers? Do we, do we still uphold the vows that we've made and the promises that we gave? Do we let go of the need to tell the truth, to make hard decisions? How would it change? Threatening people, I get it, it does garner um, less bad behavior. And I say that in a very untheoretical way because I have kids and a short fuse. I understand that like threatening them at least to make their bed, that's going to be an effective way to get them to make their beds, but it's not going to be a healthy way to make them who they are. It's not going to be a healthy way to actually raise them up. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We won't get better people, we'll get worse people because now we'll get people who are privately, internally dreaming about behavior that they cannot exhibit on the outside, fantasizing about a life that they cannot live. But back to you in the office scenario, what would you do differently if there was no punitive response for your actions? It's revealing, isn't it? Because to whatever extent we begin to allow ourselves to do this or that in the absence of punishment, we start to show our hands that we weren't ever really changed by this faith tradition. We've just been really scared the whole time. And only a cosmic child would look at the fruit of fear and insist on calling it holiness. Fear is wonderfully effective when it comes to keeping people in line, but it fails miserably at the task of raising people into life. I understand that people who have pistol finger Jesus front and center inside of their churches are having full pews and they're loud and they're singing. And if you look inside, you'll even see on occasion that they are dancing, but what you won't see is the bullets that are flying at their feet, making them move. You won't see those meetings that I had in the noodles restaurant. This is why our sacred text says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and implicit inside of that is this begging saying, please don't make the fear the middle nor the end. Fear is for the beginning. Fear is for Sinai. It's there at the start. I need my two-year-old Graham when I walk outside with him, I need him to understand that he can't just eat plastic balls that are left in the yard. I need him to understand that he still needs me to hold his hand when he walks across the street. But if Graham is 35 and he is calling me because he needs to go outside and get the mail, that's a problem. That's an issue. He made the place where wisdom starts the very place where the wisdom came to stop. In order for him to stay alive, he needs these parameters. He needs basic impulse controls, but you have to grow up. Right now in our churches, we have way too many people who have not grown up. Too many adults who are still abiding by toddler rules. And they're doing so for the same purposes. They grew up abiding by those rules because they didn't want to get in trouble with mom or dad, and they're doing so for toddler purposes still. They're still abiding by these same rules because they don't want, there's still this lingering fear that maybe in the same way we were trying to sidestep dad from spanking us, maybe God is a cosmic spanker after all. And if I don't abide by the rules, then I, I don't want to get swatted. It's time to grow up. You might say that you're coming to church for wisdom, but if that's your aim, it's really just like a wrath mitigation plan. It's time to grow up. It's time to leave that mountain. If we don't, fear moves from being something that protects us to something that ultimately imprisons us. It stops being an ally and it moves into being an adversary. It keeps us asking that toddler question of, 
what is right and what is wrong, and it fails to follow where love is always leading to the question of what does love require me right now in this particular moment. Wisdom is always being led by love. And so what if it's true? What if we actually, when we heard the one who started almost every conversation with do not be afraid, what if we actually understood that to mean that we shouldn't be afraid? Would that be respectful to take Jesus at his word? What if there is another way? What if God doesn't want us to be afraid, but it's us who have only stubbornly assumed that humans can only be governed by to do right under the threat of punishment? What if God isn't like that, though? What if there's a better way? What if there's a better mountain? In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer speaks of the Christ as one who reconciles all things and tends to all wound is the image of the invisible being that we are so scared of when we see it on Sinai. And then to punctuate her point, she doesn't reach for pistol finger genius, but instead she says this. I want you to read this with me because it's the most beautiful thing I've heard in a long time. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. That's not what this mountain is. Out of the gates, she's talking about Sinai. She's talking about the fear. She's talking about the trembling. She's talking about the smoke. Touch this mountain and you will die. That's not the kind of mountain that you've come to. We're not playing that game anymore. You have not come to a mountain that could be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. That's not what this is. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels, not in fear, but in joy, gathering as an assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn. Firstborn, those were the inheritance ones. Those were the ones who understood that they were included, that they were insiders, that they belonged. You are not in that questioning state anymore of do you or do you not belong. Those are questions from Mount Sinai, but you are here on Mount Zion. This is the church of the firstborn. You have come to the church where, whose names are written down in heaven. All those questions, if I think this way or I go down that road, will the slippery slope lead me outside of some world on the other side of this life? That's not what we do on this mountain. That question is tired. That question has been exposed as untrue. And so it's time to recognize that your name is in whatever is on the other side because you are in the firstborn. You belong. You are accepted. You are loved. It is enough because this is the mountain you are on. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the only response that is appropriate is to see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. That you believe how loved you are when Jesus says that you are so loved. That's the only appropriate response. If we ever get to that point where our budget gets robust enough and we're like, you know, maybe we ought to, maybe we are in the billboard industry. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past us. Anything could happen. What I would do is I would take out a billboard next to the beach at Lake Harriet and I would tell that billboard what I tell my kids every day before they go to school. Be brave for you are a child of God and be kind because so is everybody else. This is the mountain we are on. Be where you actually are.
Christ, Christ, you are good. Christ, we are grateful. Lord, help us to be freed from fear because you are not this horrifying punisher. You are the host of the party. You tell us 365 times, one per day of the year, that we do not have to be afraid. There is a whisper waiting for us every morning when we wake up. Give us ears to hear it and give us courage to live it. Help us to be brave because we are children of God. We do not live on Mount Sinai anymore. We are here in Mount Zion. In Christ's name, we all pray together. Amen. Thanks, Matt. When Matt was speaking, I was reminded of um, years ago, uh, back at the old church, Christ Presbyterian Church, there was a sermon on the gospel and what it meant. And I remember John Crosby, the pastor, asking in one word, how would you describe the gospel? Uh, people use the word grace or the word love. Those were the two words. I'm thinking about that because I was thinking about that is our call, right? To live our lives out of that love, out of that grace that we ourselves are given. Not out of fear. We all have done it. We all do do it. I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. But it sure doesn't lead to the full life that God calls us to. Because the full life is one of being brave being kind, stepping out into the world, out of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And on Sunday nights when we gather for communion, we get an opportunity to come together and to share in the bread and the cup. And we're reminded about God's grace and God's love. We can claim it. We can claim it again. On the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you when you eat this remember me and he took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup he said this is my blood shed for you the new covenant when you drink from this cup remember me so that's what we do we remember the grace of God the love of Jesus Christ so in this moment we ask you to take your cup off and grab that bread, that wafer, and hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. And as you take that cup, the blood of Christ shed for you.
I'm feeling my pockets, my, my tunes from Sobriety Coins from AA. And um, most of you guys know that for about six months now, I've been trying to get sober. And about a month and a half ago, I had a night where I didn't try hard enough and had all these anxieties. And for some reason, I thought the drink would be the only thing to put out that fire. All these, these words inside myself about you're not enough, you're no good. What's the point of getting sober? It's not like you got much going for it. A lot of different things. Couldn't explain it to you. Don't, don't want to. But when I went to my therapist that next week, we started crying in her office and I said, I hate myself right now. But what was I thinking? And she goes, Matt, stop. The language that got you into that mess again is not going to be the language that gets you out. If you stay stuck on Sinai and only listen to the words that you hear there, stop expecting that you're going to make it to Zion. We have to start living as if we are where God says we are and believing that we are who God says we are. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words. Friends, no matter who you are, what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved, you belong. Go in peace. Parents, go grab your babies, right? Yes, yes.